Happy New Year! It's a time of new beginnings where everyone has a chance to start fresh. I'm your host, Leah. I'm Phil. And I'm Steve. Speaking of beginnings, today's stew will be about the quirky origins of everyday things. So grab your spoon and pull up a chair. If you have an appetite for the strange and bizarre, then pull up a chair and grab a spoon for another intriguing serving of Remnant Stew. Remnant Stew is gluten-free, organic, made from all natural, free-range ingredients and guaranteed to provide the recommended daily serving of curiosity. Have you ever heard the phrase, do not despise the day of small beginnings? Have you ever heard that before? No, I've never heard Uh, that. I've heard it uh, from time to time to acknowledge that all things have to begin somewhere. Um, This is actually a a saying from the Old Testament of the Bible in uh, Zechariah chapter 4, verse 10, pertaining to the rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem, which had been destroyed by the Babylonians. The complete quote is, do not despise these small beginnings, for the Lord rejoices to see the work begin, to see the plumb line in Zerubbabel's hand. So that's what it means. The don't despise the things. Everything has to begin small. Well, the, he really loves me because I, I begin a lot of things. <laughs> <laughs> I don't necessarily see them through. Oh, well, that's all another that's Starting all another is question. fairly easy. <laughs> um, another related saying is, mighty oaks from little acorns grow. Yeah, I've heard that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. According to a website called davidantrobus.com, this is a 14th century English proverb that has many relevant applications for our time. You always tell that to people when they're starting, kids when they're starting a savings account. You know, I think that I think I've seen that quote uh, in banks before. You know, about mighty oaks from little acorns grow. Yeah, little flyers and all that stuff. So anyway, that's great that things coming from small beginnings. That's certainly inspirational and all. But we know what our listeners love. What about weird things? Where do they come from? Where'd you come from? Well, never mind. I won't go there. Um, (laughs) Birds and bees. (laughs) Well, we have you covered today as we explore people and origins that had weird beginnings or at least beginnings that were very different from their current condition. To get us started, let's take a look at the business world. Ooh. Yeah. From (laughs) Cracked.com. Why not? That's awesome. I like that. I like that website. (laughs) That's a good site. We find an article titled, The Surprisingly Strange Origins of 22 Famous Companies. Now, we won't touch on all of these, but there are certainly several that deserve our attention. And we're going to start with one that you might have in your wallet right now. Yes, it's a little bit of green thing, and it's plastic. American Express. Uh. The green card, right? According to their website, American Express was founded in 1850. By, now, listen to these names and see if they aren't a little bit familiar to you. Henry Wells, William Fargo, and John Butterfield. Well, I don't know about Butterfield, but I Wells think, and I Fargo. Think, I think yeah. I sent a spinoff. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so what was the purpose of this venture? Well, it was to <clears throat> ship packages around the eastern part of the United States. That's right. American Express was begun by Wells, Fargo, and Butterfield. As a package delivery service, Butterfield actually later was a stagecoach, ran a stagecoach line. Okay. Um, And, of course, we know about Wells Fargo. Quoting from their website, We began as a freight forwarding company in 1850, earning a reputation as a company people could trust while transporting some of their most valuable possessions. In the late 19th century and early 20th century, the company introduced traveler's checks 
and other financial services that help support customers' everyday lives. Okay, I don't know if you all remember, but back in the 70s, they had a, a series of uh, commercials. And do you remember what their slogan was? American don't, Express? Don't leave home without us? That's right. Don't okay, leave home without go. us. And there was, a, there was an old uh, actor named Carl Malden. And uh, he was their spokesman. And they would always <laughs> pre- present these scenarios. You're in a foreign country. Your wallet gets stolen. Your purse is missing. What will you do? What will you do? Okay, it was pretty dramatic. So what will you do? <laughs> well, you depend on your American Express traveler's checks, and you're in good shape, according dun, to the dun, commercial. Dun. Yeah. In the 1950s, they in- introduced the famous green card, offering customers a new and convenient way to pay. Today, American Express claims to be the world's largest global payment network. It's quite <laughs> a difference from how they started, starting off shipping packages around, and now they're a giant financial network. I mean, were they the first credit card, do you think? or uh, They were among the first. Among yeah, the first, quick, okay. Among the first, because this next one also had one around at the same time. I think, I'm thinking that there was one called Diners Club that would maybe, yeah, maybe was the that. first one. and uh, But then I think the other ones kind of may have come along immediately afterward. Now, kind of along the same lines as American <laughs> Express is Bank of America. But you might be surprised to know that Bank of America started in San Francisco in 1904 as the Bank of Italy. <laughs> Wait, what? Yeah. yeah, I didn't know that. <laughs> Did That's they forget right. where they were? <laughs> I guess I didn't realize that Italian immigrants had made it to the Wild West, but Amadeo Giannini, G-I-A-N-N-I-N-I, Giannini, was the child of uh, Italian immigrants. He was born in San Jose, California in 1870. His father developed a prosperous produce business in San Francisco, and Amadeus worked in the business until he was 31. After the death of his father-in-law, Amadeus took over management of the family's finances, which included many banking interests. In 1904, with five partners, he began the Bank of Italy. According to Britannica.com, from the beginning, he was financially unorthodox. He (laughs) (laughs) He made loans to small farmers and businessmen. And he actually solicited customers, which went against the banking, banking tradition policy. at the time. Yeah, he's actually right. advertising for, for loans. That was a contemporary. No, they should of, come to you. Right, yeah. That's the way the old thinking was. Mm-hmm. He was innovative. The bank's loans and deposits quintupled within about a year. And in 1906, <laughs> when the earthquake and fire struck San Francisco, Giannini was able to rescue the bank's gold and currency and resume banking operations much sooner than most other banks in the city. Wow. In 1909, Giannini began buying other banks in California and turning them into branches of the Bank of Italy. By 1918, the Bank of Italy became the first statewide banking system in the United States. You work for a bank, Phil. This will yeah. be fascinating by these, these stories, I'm sure. In 1927, he began acquiring a second system of banks, which he merged with the Bank of Italy, and he renamed it the Bank of America National Trust and Savings Association. This banking system helped to finance many Hollywood film projects and also much of California's agricultural industry. Wow. Similar to American Express, in 1958, they issued the first bank credit card that was called the Bank AmeriCard and is now called Visa. Okay. Yeah. Hmm. Today, Bank of America is headquartered in Charlotte, North Carolina. So they've come a long way from being the Bank of Italy in San Francisco <laughs> by Italian immigrants to one of the largest financial institutions in the world today. Right. Now, 
I think I'm going to do um, the next few like our uh, like our inspiration, uh, Mike Rowe, who would uh, tell you the whole story without telling you who he was talking about at first. Okay. See if you can figure out what's going on here. <clears throat> In 1940, a fellow named Marty Bromley created a company called Standard Games, which made coin-operated slot machines and jukeboxes for U.S. military bases in Hawaii. The company did well throughout the war years and afterwards, as Hawaii had numerous military outposts. But in 1952, the U.S. government outlawed slot machines. Oh, a bunch of killjoys. When you know. Outlawed <laughs> slot machines. Well, well they outlawed them on American military bases. I should have finished that right, sentence. Yeah. So. Don't stop until you get to the period, Steve. Well, anyway, <laughs> rather than crying his three cherries, Bromley recognized a new market for the one-armed bandits, Japan. The island nation had just emerged from American occupation after World War II, and to Bromley, it appeared to be fertile ground for the gaming industry. I bet it was. Thus, he moved Standard Games to Japan and renamed the company Sega. Oh. (laughs) In the 1960s, the company branched out into developing arcade games games as well. Sega created a popular game called Periscope in 1965 that was a hit at Japanese arcades. In the 1980s, the company entered the competitive video game market when, in 1988, they developed the Sega, Sega Genesis. Genesis. Did you right. have the Sega right. Genesis? Yeah. Yep. No, I didn't, but I, I was a girl. I mean, not to say that girls don't <laughs> video <laughs> game, but we were happy with our Atari. I didn't realize that was yeah. mandatory. But okay. yeah. Yeah. I, um, had, I had the Atari, the Sega Genesis, the Nintendo. So, yeah, yeah we were Yeah, good. I didn't have all of there that. Was the regu- there was the first Nintendo, and then the Sega, the Sega Genesis, Genesis was an upgrade, so that, that yep. forced... Um, uh, that forced Nintendo to develop the Super Nintendo. Right. Go, um, go one up. Yeah. Right. The Constantly. One up. Still to this day. Uh, in 1990, Sega introduced a character named Sonic the Hedgehog. Yep. By 2001, they abandoned gaming systems, and today they focus primarily on software development. Mm-hmm. From slot machines and jukeboxes to high tech. Well, And I think that's a mark of a, a company to stick around. They have to be flexible yeah exactly they really do that's kind of like the difference between uh blockbuster and yes. netflix absolutely you know netflix it'll was never able, catch on that's yes. right netflix <laughs> was able to to stay with the times whereas there's no blockbusters now i'm always amazed that you know you know the sears had home order home shopping sold up for 100 years with the sears catalog i absolutely. can remember when i was a kid that sears catalog was a big deal mm-hmm. and all of a sudden i guess they got too complacent uh, right. and didn't look ahead because now uh, they're they're struggling to survive. Now here's another one. See if I'm going to not give you the name of this of these people and see if you can figure out the co- the uh, company. Back in 1927, a newlywed couple named J.W. and Alice opened up an A and W root beer stand in Washington D.C. In addition to root beer floats, the young couple also installed a grill and began offering good food and good service at a fair price. They renamed their business. Hot Shop Restaurant. Oh, yeah, and they spelled shop S-H-O-P-P-E, kind of fancy-like, you know? <laughs> yeah. The following year, they added two more Hot Shop locations, including the first drive through on the East Coast. In 1937, they began offering boxed lunches to air passengers flying out of Washington, D.C. That was a whole new service. Wow, yeah. that's a different one. By 1953, Hot Shop Incorporated went public and sold out all of their shares of stock within the first two hours of trading. Now, you might be thinking, who is this young couple, and why haven't I heard of their dynamic business? 
Well, when I tell you their last name, you will recognize it. The young couple that built an enormous enterprise are not other than J.W. and Alice Marriott. Oh, okay. Interesting. Marriott. That's okay. correct. The giant Marriott Corporation began as an A&W root beer stand. So when they were an A&W root beer stand, that was they were just franchise owners, basically. Right. Okay. Right. So wow. they, from there, they, 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 they branched they, out into to hospitality. Right. Well, they did. Quoting from their website, Marriott made a historic shift into the hotel business in 1957. <clears throat> the world's first motor hotel opened in Arlington, Virginia, under the management of J.W. and Alice's son, Bill. Over the next 25 years, Marriott became a diverse global enterprise, and Bill Marriott became a visionary CEO whose leadership transformed the hospitality industry. In 1969, the company opened their first international hotel in Acapulco, Mexico, and in 1983, they opened their first courtyard by Marriott with more home-like accommodations for business travelers. Have you ever stayed in a courtyard by Marriott? I have. Yes. I have, and I, nice. I enjoy them. They are. That's it's right. really nice uh, to have more of a, you know, a home feel than when you're traveling on the road. J.W. died in 1985 and Alice in the year 2000, but the company continues to be operated by their children and grandchildren. They have over 8,000 locations worldwide and employ over 120,000 people. And it all started with an A&W root beer stand. <laughs> that's impressive. Now, I, that's, awesome. I, that's something that we don't have here in Texas is A&W root beer stands. And I loved them. Right. Not anymore. I've seen them in the, in the northern states, yeah. yeah. There was one. Right? Oh, really? There was one in the woodlands a long time ago, but now it's a Taco Bell. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So when, uh, when you think of vending machines, what comes to mind? Uh, Quarters, sodas. nickels, dimes. Um, and what did you say? Sodas and chips. So, yeah. Sodas, sodas and chips. And chips. Yeah. Basically, you know, the m- main things that they sell right now are, are sodas and chips, just yeah. snacks. Yeah, exactly. In the old days, cigarettes. Yeah. <laughs> well, here's the thing. So my I put down there, my parents bowled a lot when I was a oh, kid. Yeah. So I spent a lot of time in bowling alleys. And I remember the cigarette machines. Oh, yeah. Right. Um, and I also remember... Uh, Gumball machines, oh, of yeah. course, as a kid. Yeah, yeah. Right. But uh, vending machines for hot coffee, hot chocolate, hot yeah, soup. Yeah, you name it. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if, if y'all remember this, but one restaurant here in the Greater Cut and Shoot area, right. uh, the Kettle. Do you remember that? Oh, they had this. Oh, yeah. Actually, yeah. no, it wasn't the Kettle. It was the yeah. Village Inn. They had this, like, carousel of pies. <laughs> oh, and that you door could, vending machine. Yes. Yeah. It was you a vending- could put it in and pick the number and That's, it would spin it around. Yes. Oh, yeah. Yes. It was I, I wonderful. Don't um, I don't I ever remember if I ever got a piece of pie out of there, but as a kid, like just standing, it was better than watching TV. Yeah, you you're know? just like, right. <laughs> it coming around. It's just watch them spin. <laughs> right. Well, how far back do you think the vending machine goes? As far as, as when they were invented. coins, I guess. I don't know. Yeah, I'd say uh, 100, 130 years, maybe. 130. Well, here's... 1890s. According to an article at thoughtco.com, that's thoughtco.com, the first recorded example of a vending machine came from Greek mathematician Hero of Alexandria. Whoa! Who invented, wait, he invented a device that dispensed holy water inside Egyptian temples. Wow. He created <laughs> it in order to keep the holy water from being stolen. <laughs> Which, nice. I mean, I'm like... If people need to steal it, it's maybe not really they holy out of your You know, they might have um, had mystical powers or something. But and there were machines found in English taverns around 1615 that would dispense tobacco. 
The first coin-operated machines emerged in London during the early 1800s near right. railway stations and post offices. Right. They contained things like note paper, envelopes, and postcards. Right. Stamps, even. I yeah. yeah. Yep. Wow. The first vending machines to be found in America were installed on the elevated subway platforms in New York, New York, in 1888 and sold tutti-frutti gum. Tutti-frutti gum. <laughs> The gumball machine with its candy-coated gumballs arrived a bit later in 1907. Hmm. Soon, anything and everything that could possibly be sold remotely was put into a vending, a vending, vending machine. machine. Wow. Like get yeah, cigars, absolutely. stamps, uh, beverages, cigarettes. And here's a list of some of the strangest things to be sold in vending machines, and you tell me where you think they're located. <laughs> Fish bait. Oh, that's right here in the cut and shoot area. Yeah, right. <laughs> it's only in Texas. <laughs> it's a Texas thing. Right. Um, how about a vending machine for books? Okay, yeah, that could be public could, library. In a library, maybe. Yeah. Well, actually, uh, schools. Oh, in schools. There's okay. vending machines created for schools where kids are rewarded with tokens. Oh, okay. so to go get books out. To go get books. And can you imagine? I mean, I loved to read as a kid, but I raised four kids and they can't read. none of them. Well, they can read now, <laughs> but <laughs> but they were not voracious readers. Yes, Sam. Not... yes Sam, I'm talking to you. <laughs> <laughs> and can you imagine them going, great. Yeah. yeah. Oh, great. He called us out. <laughs> can, I... <laughs> can I burn it? <laughs> how about, how about um, cupcakes? A vending machine for cupcakes. Yeah, I can see that. Can you choose the topping? Uh, yeah, I think you can. That would have been Probably. cool. I think yeah. you can. And it's called, uh, well, I think the brand name. where that was. Yeah, yeah where yeah. was it? I think the brand name is called Sprinkles Cupcakes. San so Francisco. I think you can even choose your sprinkles. Ooh. What did you say? San Francisco. No, not quite. Beverly Hills. There's oh, one okay. in Beverly Hills and one in Chicago. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. Um, And there's a baguette. Oh, vending machine. <laughs> Got to be Paris. No, that is Paris. Yeah. Right. Uh, burger vending machine in Moscow. Draft oh. beer vending machine in Japan. We're going to talk about Japan's vending machines here in a minute because they, uh, they go overboard. Out? No. Really? Um, how about, where do you think a pecan pie Oh, well, that's got to be Georgia. somewhere in the south, you know. That's Texas. Yeah. Oh, is it Texas? Texas. <laughs> State free. And uh, this one, here. I bet you can't figure out because it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Lobster. Like a lobster like vending machine. Yeah, you you would think it would be up in the northeast, but yeah. it's in Las Vegas. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm not sure it's well, well, Imagine you think you're playing a slot and you got a lobster coming yeah. out at you. Pow. <laughs> 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 had a, had a few too Can many you to imagine? Drink. Yeah. <laughs> you pull it out to this. this. <laughs> what can I change this, this in for? <laughs> oh, man. Okay. And here's the thing. These are starting to become, they're popping up in the states that are legalizing it. Marijuana vending machines. Well, yeah, yep. I mean, yeah, and and okay. they make good money apparently. Uh, there's also in Singapore a vending machine for automobiles. That's got to be a big well, machine. I, I would call think. that. <laughs> <laughs> it's totally automated, and you use a credit card. You just have to have a really <laughs> high limit right. on your credit card. Yeah, I guess. In late 2016, Autobahn Motors in Singapore opened a luxury car vending machine. Offering Ferraris and Lamborghinis. Hmm. And, yeah, they clearly need a hefty limits on their credit cards. I'm thinking in Singapore, it doesn't have that many roads to begin with. Um, I think, you know, it's pretty crowded, it seems like. <laughs> uh, well, Japan has really embraced the vending machine and probably has the widest selection of items. Wait, wait, wait. Isn't Carvana our vending machine in the States? 
I don't know. Well, yeah. they advertise it like it is, but it, I don't but they know do it have really the, they do have the car. It, it literally looks like a giant car vending machine with yeah. the whole car. Oh, I had no idea about yeah, that. So it has a. They build like a seven story little glass enclosure that's four sided, and there's a car on every floor on each oh, side. Wow. And there's an elevator in the middle that will pull the car down and bring it to you. So you literally order your car, and it. And where is that located? All over the United States. I haven't seen that. Oh, I've we need to now go. They, now they do delivery. Okay, now, so that's an easy road trip. Yeah. We yeah. need to go see yeah. one. Yeah. Buy a car. Go <laughs> see that. Who has the highest limit? <laughs> and by the way, Carvana, if you're looking for a podcast to sponsor, <laughs> that's we'd right. love to talk with you. Um, but talking about Japan, they have yeah. vending machines for everything. So they have one that's for Amamori, which are Japanese amulets uh, commonly sold at Shinto shrines and Buddhist temples. Okay. okay. Um, they yeah. have... Uh, vending machines for T-shirts, okay. all manner of hot foods like rice, French fries, hot dogs, hamburgers, and noodles. And then not just junk food. There's fruit machines where you can get an apple or uh, there's banana vending machines where you can get just one banana. You can choose. You can get oh. a whole bunch or you can get just, just one. one. Yeah, if you just want one. I just need a hit right bunch, now. Yeah. And then, yeah, you know, <laughs> yeah. whether you need to take it home for the family yeah. for the week or if you need, you know, yeah. you just really are hankering for a banana. Um, and flowers are the same. You can get a single bloom or an entire bouquet in a vase. That's kind of a nice deal. In a yeah, vase. Yeah, in a vase. Um, and this was interesting. Dashi sto- uh, soup stock. Okay. It's and it's interesting because I mean because it's like I saw the the picture of the vending machine. It looks like it's got jars of brown liquid, uh-huh. but in each one of them is a fish, like a whole fish. I think it. And yeah. apparently, dashi soup stock is the basis of a lot of no, their the recipes. Fruit, fruit, okay. So so it's kind of like running out of sugar here. Well, you know, <laughs> Americans are all about the sugar, but you know, right. uh, they keep that stock in in stock. Um, and they also, this one makes a whole lot of sense, an umbrella vending machine. Well, you know, that does make sense. And not just for the rain, because, um, this one, not Japan, but Korea, I noticed people using umbrellas on sunny days there. Right. Uh, that makes sense. Too. You know, and it makes a lot of sense. I don't know why we do more of that here in the greater cut and shoot area, but, um. <laughs> Trees. One thing you didn't mention that made me think of, you know, vending machines is you're seeing pictures, I think in the 50s and 60s in New York, they had something called the Automat, where you could go in and yes, it was meals a, put in little slots and you could yeah. buy them and open the door and get them out. And uh-huh. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that was mentioned meal. in this article. And I got my information from ThoughtCo.com by a, uh, a, a journalist named Mary Bellis and BuzzFeed.com and the Creative Adventurer. Dot com and I'm just glad that whatever you get from a vending machine, they've upgraded to where they take credit cards. Because do nice. you remember? Oh, the slot money putting oh. in the dollar and having it spit, spit. back out. Okay, we'll there's it, only yeah. a crease on the left yes. the corner. Yes. Are you kidding? Just so, eat it already. I'm glad they they've gotten better than that. Yeah, we had a uh, when I was teaching, we had a certain teacher who was really good about bumping the machine with her hip. To get an, a stuck bag of chips, unstuck. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> people would always call her for her special talent. Oh, that's awesome! Can you come hit chip the video machine again? <laughs> well, if you're like me and allergic to any and all kinds of exercise, <laughs> I break out in sweat. Um, then you've probably been on a treadmill and at some point considered it to be cruel torture. Well, you're not wrong. Uh, the first treadmill, it was it was 
it didn't look like today's treadmill. It was a wooden cylinder with a handrail that was a lot like what we would see as a hamster, hamster wheel. Hamster right? wheel, yeah. Uh, it was created in 1818 by English engineer William Cubitt. It was designed to be used in prison when Cubitt noticed some prisoners spending their days in idleness, and uh, he set out to correct that problem. Give something to do. He he was offended by their idleness. (laughs) I'm I'm sure he was a popular guy. You're going to walk a mile. And soon prisons all over England were installing treadmills. By the Prison Act of 1865, every male prisoner over 16 sentenced to hard labor had to spend at least three months of his sentence in labor of the first class, which consisted primarily of the uh, treadmill. Wow. Um, some of the wow. more enterprising did, did prisons they create their own electricity. Well, here's a, that's okay. yeah, that's what I was going to say. <laughs> that some of the more enterprising ones hooked yeah. it up to uh, to machines yeah. like to grind grain, pump water, oh, or yeah. power ventilators in mines. Absolutely. And with some prisoners expected to walk the treadmill six hours of the day. That's a lot. It was eventually seen as cruel punishment and fell out of use about the turn of the century, about 1900. And what comes so. to my mind is the prisoners would all be in much better shape than the guards. Who I know, right? <laughs> <laughs> and now to think, you know. Some people pay a gym membership just to be able to go. Yeah, well, guilty. I pay one. (laughs) And now for something completely off topic and off kilter. Brace yourself for the oddity du jour. All right, for our oddity today, I recently ran across an interesting article. At least I thought it was interesting. We'll find out if you think it is. Uh, It was on TriviaGenius.com titled 49 Strange Facts About 49 Vice Presidents. It's a good article with very interesting facts about the 48 men and one woman who have held the office of vice president. Now, I'm not going to share all of them, but here are some of the more unusual ones. Aaron Burr. Okay, now we you probably know who Aaron Burr is. Because they sing of, about him a lot in a, yeah. in a you know more recent play. Right. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's right. Um, but mostly because of the famous duel mm-hmm. in which he shot and killed Alexander Hamilton. He had been Thomas Jefferson's vice president, but when uh, Jefferson ran for re-election in 1804, he dropped Burr from the ticket. Now, this was the year after the Louisiana Purchase. So, in retaliation, Burr recruited some soldiers and ventured west into the newly acquired Louisiana Territory and tried to start a secession movement. (laughs) (laughs) He's he's going to take his own toys and go play. We're going to go play somewhere else. Thomas Jefferson was furious, and he issued a warrant. Uh, a, a, an arrest warrant for uh, for Burr, and uh, he was arrested. He was brought to trial in Virginia for treason, but conflicting versions of what he had actually been up to led to his acquittal. They couldn't quite <laughs> pin it on him. Burr was sort of, sort of slippery that way. Now, you might not have heard of this person, but you have probably heard of something that is named for him. His name is Elbridge Jerry, G-E-R-R-Y. He was the vice president to James Madison, But before he had been vice president, he was the governor of Massachusetts, where he became well-known for redesigning voting districts for his political gain. Uh Oh, yeah, I know what he's famous for now. One of the state senate districts that he redrew was so absurd-looking that it appeared like a salamander. His opponents, (laughs) uh, his political opponents, dubbed it a gerrymander. And that phrase (laughs) has stuck with us for the last 200 years now to describe an odd-shaped political district. Gerrymandering. Gerrymandering. I used to get yeah. that term mixed up with um, 
filibuster. Yeah. I used to think that people that talked on and on and on was gerrymandering, but no, that's not it. (laughs) Now, John C. Calhoun, you might have heard of that name. He was the only vice president to serve two different presidents in two different parties. I didn't know about that. (laughs) He was John Quincy Adams' vice president in the Democratic-Republic Party. Uh, However, this party split during Adams' presidency. Calhoun switched to the new Democratic Party, which is still the Democratic Party today, and he served as Andrew Jackson's vice president during his first term. So (laughs) there's your gee whiz about John C. Calhoun. Now, here we go. William R. King. He was elected vice president to Franklin Pierce in 1852, but unfortunately he suffered from tuberculosis. Immediately after the election, he traveled to Cuba in an attempt to regain his health. In fact, he asked for and received permission to take the oath of office while still in Cuba. The oath was administered by a member of the embassy staff. He's the only vice president to take the oath outside of the United States. Mm -hmm. A few days later, he returned home to, to his home state of Alabama, but his health did not improve, and he died shortly afterwards. Oh, wow. Yeah, we talk about tuberculosis a, a lot. lot. Yeah. <clears throat> it was a big deal. It was. A, yeah. Now, you've heard of this one. Chester A. Arthur, he he was the vice president to James Garfield and then became president when Garfield was assassinated. This would have been about 1881. But many, many years before he was uh, involved in politics, he was a lawyer. Now, about 100 years before Rosa Parks, you remember Rosa Parks? Mm-hmm. Who, yep. The famous That's right. On the uh, Alabama bus. bus. Well, uh, Chester Arthur defended a black woman named Elizabeth Jennings, who had refused to leave the white section of a Brooklyn, New York streetcar. This was in 1854. Uh-oh. Arthur won the case, which officially ended um, segregation on New York City's streetcars. So that took another 100 years to get at the rest of the country, but uh, that was wow. Chester A. Arthur. All right, here's another one. Vice President James S. Sherman. He was vice president to William Howard Taft. In 1912, Sherman was suffering from a kidney disease that made it hard for him to campaign for re-election. His doctor advised him not to do any active campaigning. Quote, you may know all about medicine, Sherman reportedly responded, but you don't know anything about politics. So the vice president then gave a 30-minute speech and then collapsed. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe you do. Two, two days later, he was bedridden, and then he died before the election. Oh, wow. wow. And Taft lost that election as well. And finally, Charles Dawes, D-A-W-E-S. You probably might not have heard of him, but I bet you might have heard something that he he created. Uh, He was vice president for Calvin Coolidge from 1925 to 1929. He's the only vice president so far to have written a hit song. (laughs) Yeah. A self-taught pianist, Dawes wrote a tune called Melody in A major in 1911. Ring a bell? Uh, no. Uh, no? Okay, no. well. Uh, later on, uh, somebody added lyrics to that tune, and then the name was changed to It's All in the Game. In 1958, a version of the song by Tommy Edwards rose to number one on the Billboard chart. Oh, Every wow. tear has to fall. I think so. in the game. I oh, think so. Low. The song has since been covered by Isaac Hayes, Barry Manilow, and Elton John, among many others. Okay. So there's some vice presidential trivia for you. Well, now, do you know where the term bug came from when it refers to a bug in the machine 
or a computer bug? Phil, uh, do you know? Don't, don't know, Mr. No, IT. No, I've actually never researched. Oh, really? Where okay, the so it's term a... came from. We just use it. Oh, <laughs> That's right. You just use slacker. it all the time. <laughs> well, it's it's a pretty known story that most people uh, have heard that in 1945, a malfunction of the computer, the Harvard Mark II was traced to an actual moth trapped in, in the, yeah, oh, in a oh, relay. That makes sense. Uh, okay. The insect was taped into the logbook, and Grace Hopper, a pioneer of computer programming, wrote underneath it, first actual case of bug being found, thus coining the term bug as a glitch or malfunction. And that logbook with the moth taped inside is on display at the Smithsonian Museum. So that's oh, wow. the story oh, that wow. everybody hears about a bug. And that actually happened, however... <laughs> well, wait, However, there's more. There's more. Oh, that's there's not story. That's not the first case of the word bug being used in that context. Inventors and engineers have been talking about bugs for more than a century before the moth in the relay incident. I, Even I, Thomas first, first Edison. All, wait, wait a minute. Yeah. I love that phrase, the moth in the relay incident. Right. <laughs> let's let's enjoy that one for a minute. <laughs> but uh, Thomas Edison even used the word, given the fact that he. He uh, failed a whole lot more than he. Well, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm not, I don't like Edison, but I'm not putting him down for that. <laughs> he kept. He know. used the word bug, but a he lot used the, yeah things. Yeah, yeah. Okay. It took a lot of light bulbs to get to where he was. <laughs> That's true. Uh, but if you trace the etymology of the word bug, you'll find out that it goes way back to an old term for a monster, and pops up in the words. Bugaboo and bugbear. I've yeah, heard yeah. bugaboo before, mm-hmm. yeah. Like so Grace Hopper bugaboo. and the other computer programmers she was working with that day in 1945 did manage to be the first to bring the old term of bug in the machine into the electronic age, though. Yes. So yeah. there you go. Well, you computer know, your, bug. <laughs> Leah's husband is in the air conditioning business, and I one time had my air conditioning wasn't working many years ago, and uh, the guy came out, and I had... Uh, ants mm-hmm. that were blocking the relay he took a little Didn't air compressor him. blew them out and i paid him he said yeah i'll make a lot of a uh, lot of dollars blowing ants out of the relay <laughs> <laughs> it's interesting that ants like electricity yeah they're they do. really they're attracted yeah they're it. attracted to it uh but he has found all manner of dead animals inside air conditioning <laughs> units so. a lot of snakes Ooh, yeah, yep. never mind. well now this next one is really pretty strange Two different rival companies started by two brothers who initially made supplies for the Nazis. Can I, any idea where we're going here? No. From a website called fabricbrands.com, and fabric is with a K, F-A-B-R-I-K-B-R-A-N-D-S.com, we learned the strange story of Rudolph and Adolf Dassler, D-A-S-S-L-E-R, who were both born in Germany around the turn of the 20th century. In the years following World War I, the brothers worked together in their mother's laundry room to develop a new kind of athletic shoe. They had some success, and they called their fledgling company Gebruder Dassler, or Dassler Brothers. And they shortened the, uh, eventually they shortened the name to Geda, G-E-D-A. Athletes tended to like their shoes, as during the 1936 Berlin Olympics, uh, Olympic Games, Gata shoe-wearing competitors accounted for seven gold medals as well as five silver and bronze. Wow. Gata shoes likely would have had astronomical growth had it not been for World War II. During the war, Gata manufactured boots for the German army, and they also made an anti-tank weapon. No, no, not the infamous <laughs> Goliath doodlebug that we mentioned. 
<laughs> in one of oh, our favorite episodes yeah, of Submarines <laughs> in War Machines, which was very entertaining. Yeah, that isn't that the the doodlebug? Isn't that the one that had the, the, the extension cord? Yeah, yes. like it had to be plugged in. Okay. Yeah, a two thousand foot extension cord yes. for power. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that didn't work out. Didn't think that through anyway. Now they they had a different one, the Dassler brothers. But unfortunately, Rudolph was drafted into the army. However, Adolf was allowed to stay home and run the factory. I wonder if it had anything to do with his name. Well, anyway. Oh. <laughs> this didn't set well with Rudolph as his brother was raking in the Deutschmarks while he was risking his life out on the front lines. In fact, he was uh, Rudolph was actually captured by the Allies and spent some time in a detention camp before he was released. The relationship between the two brothers began to deteriorate along this time, but no one is exactly sure why. There is a rumor of a liaison between Adolf's wife and Rudolph. It is known that the two wives couldn't stand each other, which didn't help matters at all. Rudolph even accused Adolf of enabling his capture and detention in order to get him out of the business. Oh, wow. After World War II, the relationship between the two brothers was completely broken. They couldn't even stay in the same room together. When the Dassler brothers were separating, essentially every person in the small town of Herzog, I'm sorry, Herzogenrock, uh, Germany, Herzogenrock was uh, employed by them or uh, was employed by them at the time. Everybody in the town was employed by them. Wow. Negotiations were held between the two brothers to split earnings, equipment, and employees. Both brothers still wanted to continue their pursuit in the sporting shoe industry. In 1948, Rudolph began a new company called Rudas, utilizing the first three letters of his first name and uh, and the first three letters of his last name. The following year, Adolf began his company utilizing his nickname, Addy, and the first three letters of his last name, thus forming the Adidas Company. Oh. Rudolph felt that was too close to his name, so he changed his company name to Puma and took the iconic image of the Puma cat for its logo and branding. Oh, I didn't oh, know wow. that. Okay. Started by brothers that couldn't stand at each other. Right. Wow. Quoting from Fabric Brand's uh, article, Unfortunately, even separating into two separate companies didn't eliminate the rift between the two brothers. The Dashler brothers continued to stay at each other's throats, now bitter rivals in the business world, as well as in their personal lives. Neither country, I'm sorry, neither company is now controlled by the descendants of the Dashler brothers. Adolf and Rudolph both passed away, and Puma is now owned primarily by the French luxury goods maker PPR, while Adidas belongs to a number of small shareholders. Interestingly, though, both of the companies have continued to maintain their headquarters within the small town of, uh, oh, I forgot how to say it. Oh, yeah, Herzen, Herzenrock. No, Herzogenrock. Yeah. Herzog and Rock. So That's an interesting Herzog and Rock. Herzog and Rock. Yeah, they've <laughs> they've both got the the, the headquarters. The, both companies are still there in that small town. I had so. no idea that they were German companies. Yeah, I didn't either. Adidas and I thought they were American Puma. companies. Huh. Yeah. Well, now I love this next one. This is especially dear to my heart. <laughs> See, okay, I I came across this and I gave it to you because yeah. I knew well, you I, loved I, this. I had seen it when I was uh, on my travels this past summer. Um, if I were to say the names Agnetha, Bjorn, Benny, and Anifred, 
Would you know who I was referring to? I know a few people who would just immediately know what this is. <laughs> I, but, yeah, I would. I would not. In other, yeah. I would not have guessed this myself. Right. But I know a few people who would have figured who knew that, who know this specifically. Right. Well, fans of the iconic Swedish pop group from the 1970s know very well that I'm referring to ABBA, yep. whose name comes from the first letters of the names of the four performers. And I have to tell you that on my recent trip to Europe. Uh, we spent a couple of days in Stockholm, and we had a great time one morning touring the ABBA Museum, which the, <laughs> their slogan is, walk in, dance out. So, you know, it was fun. And uh, did you? Oh, oh yeah, so, I oh, did. Yeah. I actually oh, got, yeah. I have a video of me dancing. Well, they, they're this, this, they have this thing where you can, um, you can stand by holograms on a stage and dance with the four of them <laughs> and take a video. So I've got a video of myself. And uh, uh, so... <laughs> Actually, I had to educate my older sister and my brother-in-law about who ABBA was, as they were children of the '60s and quite not didn't. They'd start having baby by the '70s and stop listening to music, and that's the way it works, you know. When you start Pretty having close, children, yeah. you kind of <laughs> yeah. lose track of the music world. Um, well, anyway, um, they were both familiar though with the movie Mamma Mia, of course, which features all ABBA songs. Every song oh. in both movies, Mamma Mia, are all songs uh, from ABBA. The group broke up in the early 1980s. However, just last year, uh, I should say in uh, in 2021, I believe, uh, all they're all in their 70s now. They got back together during the pandemic to produce a whole new album, and it's done very well. Hmm. In fact, their voice quality and their tight harmonies haven't lost anything in the past four decades, really. Altogether, ABBA has sold over 400 million albums worldwide. Wow. Extraordinarily popular around the world. The music critics hate them, but the public loves them. (laughs) (laughs) Well, now to our topic of strange beginnings. We want to talk about one of the group's members, that being of the brunette, Annefried Lingstad. And like our previous story, there is a Nazi Germany connection. When Hitler came to power in 1933, he preached the doctrine of racial superiority of the Aryan, Northern European people. He also encouraged a policy known as Lebensborn, or Spring of Life. This policy pushed Germans, particularly those who demonstrated physical characteristics, such as being tall, with blonde hair and blue eyes, to produce as many children as possible to strengthen the Aryan race and support the fatherland. German soldiers stationed in Denmark and Norway were strongly encouraged to father children with women in these occupied countries. Annefried was born in the small town of Narvik, Norway, to a Norwegian mother whose name was Sinny Lingstad and a German sergeant named Alfred Haas on November 15, 1945, some six months after Germany had surrendered. Alfred already had a wife and family back in Germany, and he was shipped home at the end of the war unaware that Sinny was pregnant with his daughter. Unfortunately, at the end of the war, many Norwegians mistreated Sinny and other women who had given birth to the children of German soldiers. They were branded as collaborators, and they and their children were often subject to abuse. Mm. To escape this tri- uh, this treatment, Sinny's mother took her and Annefried across the border to Sweden, where Annefried was just two years old. Uh, soon thereafter, unfortunately, Sinny died of a stroke, leaving Annefried to raise uh, to be raised by her grandmother. Her grandmother always encouraged Annefried to sing while doing chores around the house. When she was 13, Annefried entered her first singing competition at a Red Cross charity event, and she has never left show business since that time. In 1976, as ABBA was rising in, uh, rising in popularity, 
A meeting was arranged with her father while the group was performing in Germany. While her father was open to her, she came away from the meeting somewhat cold and depressed. Today, she is still performing, but she also works to help those of her peers who had been ostracized in Norway and other locations because their fathers were German soldiers. Mm. Really interesting story about the beginning of uh, one of the members of ABBA. Yeah. Okay, this next story. Um, let me just ask you, what do you, do you know what chewing gum and the Alamo have in common? Well, I don't know that at all, no. <laughs> chewing gum is actually quite ancient. There's evidence that northern Europeans were using birch tree bark as chewing gum as far back as 9,000 years. Wow. It's thought that in addition to just the enjoyment of chewing, it was also used to help alleviate toothaches. Um, according to anthropologists, the ancient Mayans were known to chew a substance derived from the sep- – I don't know how to pronounce it. Sepadilla. Sep- I think you're Sepadilla. Right. Yeah, probably since it's Latin it, or comes Spanish. from the Latin cu- country. It's Sepadilla tree yeah. in order to quench thirst or fight hunger. In the Mayan culture, it was only socially acceptable. This is interesting for just children and unwed uh, women oh. to chew in public – Whereas married women, widows, and men uh, would chew it in private. Oh. Isn't that interesting? Yeah, okay. Um, this chewable substance was called chicle. C-H-I-C-L-E. Oh, you know what? I think it's chicle. Chicle. You think? Chicle, yeah. Chicle. I think it's chicle. Maybe so. Um, in that's, North- still, that's still how you say gum Ch- in Spanish. Chicle. chicle. Okay. Yeah. Well, there you go. Chicle. In North America, the indigenous people were resorted to chewing on spruce tree resin. The first commercially produced gum was created in 1840 by John Curtis, okay. who boiled the resin of spruce trees, cut it into strips, and he coated it with cornstarch to keep the strips from sticking together. Good thinking, John. Thank yeah, it, a lot of the things that we eat are coated in, in cornstarch to yes. keep it from, like gummy bears, for instance. Yeah, I think I'm coated in cornstarch, to be honest with you. But uh. <laughs> Even though Curtis managed to open the first chewing gum factory in Maine, sales weren't that great because spruce resin just doesn't taste that good. Yeah, it doesn't seem like one you'd pick up off the shelf first. Anyway. Right. Well, and it became hard and brittle uh, as it was being chewed. Mm. The gum we know and love today was invented in a roundabout way. An inventor in New York named Thomas Adams got his hands on some chicle Mm -hmm. through exiled Mexican president Antonio Lopez (laughs) de Santa Ana. Oh, yeah. (laughs) That's a bad word here in Texas. Um, Oh. (laughs) It's that Santa Santa Ana from the Battle of the Alamo. And he Uh went to New York. (laughs) Well, Santa Ana, here's the thing. Santa Ana wanted help developing chicle into a substitute for rubber. He had some great plans to get rich by creating a competitive market for rubber using a substance that was just in an abundance in his home okay. home t- homeland. Yeah, right. In turn, he would use his riches to return to power in Mexico. Yeah, buy his way yeah, back in. Great plan. Yeah. But experiments by Adam to create a rubber substitute from Chicle proved a failure, and the project was abandoned by old Santa Ana. Mm. Uh, Adams realized, though, that he might it might be possible to create a better chewing gum, and his yeah. experiments in that field paid off. He created a gum factory, and sales had reached clear across the U.S. by the 1880s. The main ingredient, chicle, was eventually replaced with synthetic ingredients by the mid-1900s. The brand name of Adams's gum? Chicklets. Chicklets. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
chicklets you and uh, you know you can buy i don't know you don't see them as much anymore but you can even buy little packages when i was a kid with tiny little chicklets in them they were multicolored. Uh-huh. oh yeah, yeah mm-hmm. i used to love those oh yeah, yeah i remember yeah. those uh it's funny and you used to be able to buy just uh little packs of just two pieces of gum right uh in it right and and those oh, yeah, were tiny ones i remember that well yeah. there was t- no these were these were the regular size but it just I had mean, tiny two little pieces. packages yeah yeah tiny little packages and they were popular to give out at halloween well my niece lost her two front teeth and for a long long time she spent as a child with no no two front teeth right, right? and my sister used to Teaser saying that she's going to buy her some chiclets to, to replace <laughs> oh, her teeth. The place. Yeah, yeah. I've actually heard that that word chiclets used as a slang word for teeth too. Yeah. You know? And and I got my information on on chewing gum from history.com. All right. Well, now we're thrillingly close to actual entertainment here. So let's see if this is going on. <laughs> close. Wow. Right. Yeah. Very close. Uh, last year we had one of my favorite episodes titled "The Strangest Kidnapping You've Never Heard Of." Right. If you yeah, haven't heard true. that, please go back and listen to it. That was season three, episode twelve. In that episode, we talked much about the country of Korea had been occupied by Japan from 1910 until the end of World War II. Well, during this time, a fellow named—I'm going to say it wrong. I'm sorry. A fellow in Taegu, Korea, named Byung Chul Lee. That's B-Y-U-N-G hyphen C-H-U-L-L and then L-E-E. Began a food export company. He was exporting dried fish and flour to China and other parts of East Asia. Like most other Koreans, he lost nearly everything during the Korean War. Afterwards, his company diversified into sugar refining, life insurance, and textile mills. <laughs> That's, <laughs> That's quite diverse, a, isn't it? Yeah, That's that diverse. Is diverse. <laughs> In the late 1960s, he expanded into a totally new area, electronics. In 1970, they produced their first black-and-white television. Later that decade, they also started producing washing machines, refrigerators, and microwaves, and they dabbled in petrochemicals. In the 1980s, they started uh, producing color TVs, personal computers, VCRs, and tape recorders. And this is the decade that they also started exporting many of their products to North America. Yep. In the 90s, they began producing memory and hard drives for personal computers. By the early 2000s, they were producing mass quantities of cell phones. Mm-hmm. Today, they are the world's largest manufacturer of mobile phones. And, of course, I'm talking about Samsung, the company that started out selling dried fish in 1938. <laughs> from dried fish to, <laughs> to cell, cell phones. phones. And now, your information came from the Business Insider. From, oh, oh, yeah, the businessinsider.com. Businessinsider.com. Right. Now, this one, um, I'll tell you where it comes from at the end because I want you to try to guess what the company is first. Back in 1833, a London antique dealer named Marcus Samuel was looking for opportunities to expand his business. After noticing the recent popularity of utilizing seashells for interior design, he decided to import ornate-looking seashells from China. His business boomed, and he became wealthy. When he died in 1870, the business passed to his two sons, Marcus Jr. and Samuel. Yes, that's right. He named his second son Samuel Samuel. Was the local George Foreman named all of his sons George Foreman? Remember that? Yeah, and I've known people named William Williams. Yeah, Yeah. In the 1880s, they became interested in the oil exporting business. At the time, transporting oil was difficult as it was contained in barrels, which often leaked. 
The Samuel brothers hit upon the idea of having oil transported in bulk on specifically built steamships with reinforced cargo holds. They commissioned a fleet of these ships and soon increased their wealth as they were now able to transport oil around the world much easier. One of their ships became the first tanker to transit the Suez Canal. In a nod to their father's seashell success, they named their business the Shell Transport and Trading okay. Company. They also produced kerosene and bright red canisters with the name Shell emblazoned pr uh, prominently on the front. In 1901, we haven't given it away yet, right? Uh, <laughs> in 1901, oh yeah, I guess it did. Uh, <laughs> when oil was discovered in Texas, the Samuel brothers won the rights to full distribution of the new Texas product right from here in the greater cut and shoot area. In 1907, the company merged with a smaller company called Royal Dutch, and so Royal Dutch Shell was formed on April 21st, 1907, and is today the third largest corporation in the world, and it all started with an antique shop. That information came from Shell.com, from their own website. Black nice. gold, Texas tea. That's right. Now, this is an interesting one also. Back in the 1830s, there was a candle maker named William and a soap maker named John. These two fellows became acquainted when they married a couple of Ohio girls who happened to be sisters. One evening at a family dinner, the two gentlemen began discussing the difficulty of finding the raw materials necessary for their products. As both candles and soap required animal fat, mm -hmm. their father-in-law suggested that they pool their resources and start business together. Thus, in 1837, William Proctor and James Gamble launched in Cincinnati one of America's most stable and innovative companies, Procter & Gamble. Procter & Gamble sold both candles and soap to the Union Army during the Civil War. After the war, their sales of these items increased as they began to advertise. They introduced ivory soap in 1879, Crisco shortening in 1911, and Joy, the first synthetic liquid detergent in 1949. In 1932, Procter & Gamble sponsored a radio program called The Puddle Family. This was the first soap opera, so named because <laughs> uh -huh. of the sponsor. Because of the spo sponsor. That's right. By the way, Procter & Gamble, if you look... Well, never mind. <laughs> now, it's interesting. I just looked it up. Procter & Gamble, um, do you remember the satanic panic oh yeah the there 90s. was their symbol people thought that it was a satanic that's right symbol. their symbol is really kind of cool it's, it look i'm looking yeah. at it right now i mean and it's it's an old one they don't use it now right. uh their logo was like a it looks like the man in the moon, the moon perhaps and stars and, and, stars like and there everything was a six around it somewhere too right uh i don't know about that oh, maybe. but um yeah, I remember that the controversy all oh, back in the 80s. Okay, it seemed so like I'm it. reading from Atlas Obscura. It says, if you, and this is quoting from it, if you were alive in eight, 1982, you might remember a very special episode of Phil Donahue. That's right. His yes. talk show. On that day, the president of Procter & Gamble went on the program and admitted that the company supported the Church of Satan and that its logo contained satanic symbols. <laughs> oh, it happened in 1985. Actually, other remember, others remember it airing in 1989. The truth is, it never, never happened. Never happened. Never <laughs> happened. That's right. Uh, but it, they've never had any connection to the Church of Satan or nope. anything. They were just uh, a victim of the satanic panic. And it seems it seems unfortunate because they've really been a very innovative company. Right. Um, they've, uh, well, let's see, uh, Procter & Gamble has also been an innovator in the area of labor relations. 
1887, they were the first American company to issue a half-holiday on Saturday. That was breathtaking at the time. Uh, that In that same year, they also began a profit-sharing program for their employees. By 1920, they were guaranteeing four weeks of paid vacation for their workers. Oh, wow. Other yeah, innovations, that's very innovative. Yeah. Other innovations, including a disability pension plan, a life insurance plan, and employee, employee representation on the board of directors. In recent years, Procter and Gamble has been praised as half of its board members of um, half of its board of directors are now women. Oh wow! Today, Procter and Gamble offers a wide wide range of products. I'll bet everybody listening has at least a pro- one Procter and Gamble product in your home. Here's just a few: coffee, tea, baking mixes, prescriptions, medications. Mouthwashes, toothbrushes, and toothpaste, cleaning products, detergents, paper towels, toilet paper, snack foods, fragrances, deodorants, cosmetics, shaving supplies, hair color, baby diapers, baby wipes, shampoo, moisturizers, pet food, and other pet care items. Holy cow. They're they're all over the place. I mean, (laughs) it's just, if you need it created, they've probably got it. Right. They've been one of the most prominent advertisers as well as leading issues of free samples and discount coupons. All this from a candle maker and a soap maker who happened to marry sisters. <laughs> Interesting. Okay, I'm not even going to ask because I really don't want to know. But <laughs> there is the age-old question of boxers or briefs. <laughs> I say age-old just because it's been asked a lot. But both styles of underwear only date back to the 20th century. Before the 1920s, that question would have gotten you a blank stare because neither option existed, existed yet. Yes. Always, always, yeah. From uh, Victorian times into the 1930s, men had mostly worn tight-fitting knee-length flannel drawers mm-hmm. <laughs> beneath their pants, or the full-bodied union suit with that, you know, right. with the flap in the back. Long John, yeah, <laughs> yep, Long Johns. In 1925, Jacob Golum. Golom, uh-huh. G-O-L-O-M-B, the founder of a sport of the sporting equipment company Everlast. Oh, Everlast. So, boxing yeah, they're stuff, still yeah. here. Wow. Tried to make something a little bit better for boxers to wear than the trunks held up by the leather belt that was currently being worn. I had no, I mean, I knew that they were called boxers, but I never made the connection or <laughs> yeah. knew the connection, you know, that they... They were actually, actually worn by boxers. Worn yeah. by boxers. Yeah. So Gollum replaced the leather belt with an elastic waistband. Boxers loved the new design. Because it's lighter and less chafing. Yeah. Yeah, but it did. Too. Okay, but here's the thing. It didn't really catch on outside the boxing arena well, until yeah. after World War II. Okay. So briefs, Why? or tidy whities uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> were invented in 1934 when Arthur Niebler, an executive and designer at the Wisconsin Hosiery Company Coopers Incorporated, received a postcard from a friend who was visiting the French Riviera. The postcard featured a man in a bikini-style bathing suit, so kind of like a Speedo, and inspired Niebler to create a legless undergarment with a Y-shaped fly. He named it the Jockey, and it sold extremely well compared to boxers, which men complained about having too little support. I got you. Briefs were the popular choice of undergarments for men. But then along came a company called Joe Boxer (laughs) that really stirred things up. To quote straight from the Mental Floss article, because I got all this information from Mental Floss. Right. uh, Quote. I thought you might have read the back of an underwear package. I'm not sure. (laughs) 
afraid of the loom. <laughs> uh, okay, so listen to this. Quote, one of the main beneficiaries of this new obsession with snappy underwear was Joe Boxer, which started making skivvies in 1984 when it filled an order for Macy's that included a design with a Velcro-attached removable raccoon tail. <laughs> Okay. Okay. Joe Boxer really jumped into the spotlight in 1985. Phil's just over here. What? Um, They jumped in the spotlight in 1985, though, when it made boxers printed in the image of $100 bills. Okay. The Secret Service decided that these duds violated forgery laws (laughs) (laughs) and confiscated a thousand pairs of the offending underwear. You know, G-Men all over the country were wearing those. (laughs) But here's the thing. Several that came in and confiscated them, We talk about the the flexibility and innovation of, of companies. Um, instead, and I'm still quoting from Mental Floss, instead of simply hiring lawyers, Joe Boxer turned the seizure into a lighthearted news event. Right. And the image of boxers as a playful alternative to stolid briefs. Right. Um, <laughs> so the adage of any publicity, even negative, negative publicity, is good publicity. It really worked in this case, and the sale of boxers took off to rival that of the tidy whiteys. Right. At one last note on men's underwear, and this is so interesting. In 2008, Federal Reserve Chairman Alan Greenspan explained that the sale of men's underwear could be used to gauge the economic health of the nation. Okay. Greenspan reasoned that most men have a drawer full of fairly ratty underwear that yeah. they'll wear until the elastic is dead yeah. or the boxers are riddled <laughs> with holes. <laughs> Since underwear are not seen by their coworkers or friends, men generally feel that replacing their underwear is done more out of out of luxury than necessity. Yeah, that's I can see that. <laughs> <laughs> As such, when men start fearing the economy is in a downturn and need to a place to save a little cash. They Those simply the make do with yeah. what yeah. they have, yeah. uh, regardless of how worn out worn out it is. And sales of men's underwear plummet. The logical argument was proven to be true when, in 2008, the nation was plunged into a recession and men's underwear sales fell 12 percent that year. So That's there you really have interesting. it. <laughs> wow! Very good. Those are great, great uh, stories about strange beginnings. I think. <laughs> And now it's time, boys and girls, for the Trivia Challenge. All right, Trivia Challenge. You know how this works. Like and follow our Facebook page, at Remnants Do Podcast. Like and share this episode post. Put your answer to the Trivia Challenge question in the comments on that post. The first person to do all that will be the winner. Yay! Yay! And we'll be mentioned in an upcoming episode of Remnant Stew. We are also opening our trivia challenge up to school kids. Pay attention back there. If your classroom listens to Remnant Stew and they want to answer this trivia question, then send us an email with their answer to staycurious at remnantstew.com. If your class wins, we'll send a cool little care package to the class. So, Leah, what is our question for today? Well, this is thanks to Harbin. This product was called, quote, 100 mile per hour tape. What is it called now? Who invented it and why? Oh, okay. 100 mile an hour tape. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Oh, that's interesting. Okay. Very good. Hey, thanks for spending some time with us. Check us out on Facebook and Instagram at Remnants 2 Podcast. You can also send us an email to say hi or suggest a topic for a future episode at staycurious at remnants2.com. We love to hear from you. 
Remnant Stew is a part of Rook and Raven Ventures and is created by me, Leah Lamp. Dr. Stephen Meeker and I research, write, and host each episode along with commentary by our audio producer, Philip Singfeld. Theme music is by Kevin McLeod with voiceover by Morgan Hughes. Special thanks goes out to Judy Meeker and Harbin Gold. Before you go, please hit the follow button so you won't miss an episode. Head on over to Apple Music and leave us a review. We love reading those reviews. Share Remnant Stew with your friends, your family, the Marriott family if you run into them. And until next time, oh, you know it's New Year's. How about making this a New Year's resolution? Choose to be kind. And And always always stay curious. curious.